The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you that you have given us reason to sing hallelujah. Praise to your name. You've given us great reason to do that, Lord, because you have made a world and you've put us in it and you've drawn near to fellowship with us. Coming to tabernacle among us, even within us, those of us who are yours, your people. You have drawn near, actually chased us down and caught us to draw near. Bless your name. Hallelujah. And so, Lord, as we hear your instruction, and if in it we hear correction or even rebuke, I pray that you would put on us, your people, a gentle hand, a hand that firmly and clearly corrects, but corrects in kindness, draws us to you and reminds us all along you have drawn near, have made us yours, love us, and are changing us for our good. Remind us of that, Lord. Do you have clarity to the text this morning? There, there are a number of twists and turns that, that confuse me sometimes as I think about them. And I pray that you would bring clarity, that you would bring the, the important points for each person here home, you would bring them home and cause them to sit, to clearly be seen, understood, you would present them in a compelling way to the minds and hearts of each individual here. So Lord, I'm asking you to speak through your word by your spirit. Would you send him now to run in power in the room? Would you send him now to make clear to illumine the Word of God for the glory of God amongst the people of God for the sake of the church of God and the glory of the Son of God. Make that happen, Father, I pray. Use the text in front of us and build your kingdom, O great King. Thank you, Lord. We love you because of you. We love you because of your grace. We love you because of your goodness. Help us to love you more and to follow you more faithfully. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 8, which takes us into a new section of this book and, in fact, a new section in all of the history of Israel. This chapter is a bridge that will lead us out of the period of the Judges with its main character of Samuel. Israel has been in this period of the Judges now for close to 400 years, and the first part of the book of Samuel is that same period. Samuel is the last judge. It's going to lead us out of that period into the period of the monarchy with, coming up, the main character of Saul. Samuel's still going to be around for a while. He'll be in the next several chapters, but from here on out, that it's moving in a different direction as Israel has now asked for a king. 
That's what happens in this chapter, which is somewhat ironic at this point, given how well the judge's paradigm is working right now. Last week in chapter 7, we looked at one of the most positive passages in the whole book. You'll recall that when the ark of the Lord came back to Israel, they had trouble with it, and so they set it aside and and essentially steered clear of it for a bunch of years. And we saw in verse 2 of chapter 7 that Israel for 20 years, a long time it says, lamented after the Lord. Knowing, kind of looking in his direction with tears in their eyes, knowing he's the one we need. There's something in him, with him, from him that we miss, that we lack, and we, we mourn over that. But for some reason or another, they couldn't close up and come into close, tight, intimate fellowship with him. And so Samuel then appeared in verse 3 and clarified things for them. The prophet steps forth and clarifies, reveals why they aren't united with the Lord because they're trying to mix the worship of him with the worship of idols. They're trying to draw near to to hug him, if you will, but their arms are full of the idols, the the gods of the nations. And so he calls them to repentance, and the people hear it and respond with, with great repentance, with wholehearted dependence on the Lord. They submit to Samuel as judge, that is, leader and ruler and teacher. And he intercedes for them, particularly at the critical moment when the Philistines come to attack them at Mizpah. They gathered together at this place called Mizpah. The Philistines sent an army to attack them. The people are afraid of them, and they see them as they are marching, even on the battlefield, marching to them, and they pray to Samuel, call out to the Lord for us, and he offers a sacrifice, and he prays, and God steps in, and miraculously, marvelously, in stunning fashion, intervenes. And the Philistines are destroyed before them. And from then on, it says that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the Philistines in support of his people Israel. For years and years, through the judge Samuel. They're still around, but God is heavily in favor of his people through Samuel for years. Things are working just fine. But then the people want to change things. Something changes, and we get some indication of it in this passage as to why. They're not content with what they have in chapter 7 They want something more in chapter 8. So we're going to read the passage and then pass back through it to make sure that we understand the details before then making a couple of application observation points. So let me read 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole chapter. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when he said, when, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, 
forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us. That we may also be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice. And make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. First Samuel chapter 8. Coming into this chapter, many years have passed since the end of chapter 7, and Samuel is now an old man with a couple of adult sons. And this Samuel, who has been a, a significant hero in this book in a number of different places, who is a, a model of Christ, we talked about, he's a... a a type pointing out what Jesus, the Messiah, would be like? Well, we see here that Samuel, in fact, is just a man with feet of clay. We see his weakness and his imperfection. He made his sons judges over Israel. He appointed his sons judges, which is a twofold problem. First, judgeship was not hereditary. God raised up judges one by one as need came wasn't passed on down to the generations. Samuel should know better, but he, he made his sons king. He has no business doing that. He made his sons judges. And he has no business appointing Hophni and Phinehas. I, I mean, Joel and Abijah. Yeah, it's Joel and Abijah. He has no business appointing these two, of all people, Judges who are to teach the people the ways of the Lord and defend righteousness and justice, but are wicked themselves. But there's kids. His sons that he raised and that he appointed. Samuel's a man just like us. And he appoints his sons judges, and the people see this, and Israel gathers together to talk to Samuel about another plan. Verse 5, You are old and your sons are wicked. So, instead of them, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. 
And if you'd only read up to this point in the Bible so far, you might read that and, and think that's not a bad thing. And in itself, it isn't. In itself, it isn't. After all, in chapter 2, did we not read that Hannah, in her, in her great song of celebration, sang in joy of the time when God would give strength to his king. And we also saw that the Lord, through Moses in Deuteronomy 17, had spoken about how one day Israel would ask for a king like the nations, even using the same phrase. And then when that happened, God spells out, here's what that king is to be like. A king of righteousness and justice and peace and humility who holds steadfastly to the Lord and leads his people in good. And did we not see in the book of Judges that the Lord, through the author of Judges, underlined several times, you need that king. And so we come here to chapter 8. Are we finally to rejoice that, yeah, now the moment has come, the people have asked for God's king. Are we to rejoice over that? Well, no. Verse 6, it displeases Samuel, and he prayed to the Lord about it, and the Lord clarifies something that we can't see, at least yet, we can see it later in the passage. We can't see, but the Lord knows is actually going on. He clarifies, middle of verse 7, the request is initiated by Samuel's age and Samuel's sons, but it isn't about turning away from Samuel. Samuel, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me as king over them. Verse 8, just like always from the very beginning. The Lord was king over his people. He made a covenant with them when he brought them out of Egypt. You are my people. I am your ruler. Here's the covenant, the treaty by which we relate. That was the whole structure of the book of Deuteronomy, if you were here at that point. when We preached through that book. He's the ruler. They are the people. He set that up. He provided for them. He blessed them. But as always, from that point on, again and again and again, they said no. In one way or another, no, 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 no. We know better. And this is the same old thing, says the Lord, just like was going on in the period of the judges, right up to now. Things are good, and so the people reject him. Turn away. And so he says to Samuel, give them what they want, but tell them what it will be like. Verses 10 to 18. This is the word of the Lord to Samuel, the prophet, and then to the people. So this is God telling the people, this is what it's going to be like. These are the ways of the king. And there's a great irony in this word, because they ask for the, a king to judge them. And when he says these are the ways of the king, that the root word is the very same word. This is how he's going to determine to go. He's going to take everything. And the word take is repeated again and again. A couple of related concepts are in there also. He's going to take everything. Which is not a particularly spiteful taking. This is just what kings are. He's going to take your boys. He's going to take your girls. Take your fields. Take your servants. Take your livestock. And then take your money. How else do you think he's going to give you what you're after? A strong central government with a strong army to defend you. That's the issue. Because when they come around to it again the second time and they sit down in verse 20, 
that we may also be like, they want a king, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us, and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they're after. They're after a champion. A strong leader who will go out before them and fight for them and deliver them. Security. If you want that, he's going to have to gather to himself all of the resources of the land. Where is he going to get it? From you. They hear that, but verse 19 says they refuse to obey it. To obey the voice. Indicating God's not just informing them. There is something that is akin to command here that they say no to. Now he's, he's giving them information, he's giving them advice, he's counseling them. And they are saying again, as usual, no, we will not obey that. We will not follow that, we will not heed it. We want a king. Okay, give it to him. That's where the passage ends. Kind of leaves us hanging now when it moves on, we, we see how it comes about that Saul becomes king. You know where the story is going. But it leaves us here at this point to pause and consider the request. Where it comes from, why. So that's what we're going to look at today. Why they ask for a king. And what's, what's going on in them and what does that say about us? I'm going to make two observations. And, and this is... I, I think this is not rocket science. The first observation is really clear. Maybe the second one is less so. But the first one's really clear. And, and perhaps this comes to you, perhaps with some confrontation. That's why I pray at the beginning that, that if, if God lays his hand on you, he would, he would lay a hand on you that is also a hand of comfort and, and, and a clear reminder that if you are one of his people, he's for you. And if you're not, become one of his people. But we need to be clear about something that, that is, is not obscure in this text. So here, here's the first point. We must not reject the reign of the king. Not complicated. There is a king. We didn't vote for him. He's king. And we must not reject the reign of this king. That is very clearly the main issue in the passage. The main problem is not that the people want a king. It's that they don't want the Lord as king. That's different. God allows room for, even dictates the structure around which they would have a king with him still as king. They don't want that set up. They are sending away the Lord, rejecting Him. That's what's clarified in verses 7 and 8. They are turning away from me. They are forsaking me and serving other gods, says in verse 8. Which clarifies for us, this is not a passage really about government. This is about worship. This is a spiritual issue. They want to serve other gods. It's about the worship of other gods over the Lord. It's about the first commandment all over again, just like always. Which is a tragedy 
We have to stop and sit on this for a moment. Because we blow right by it. He even says, just like from the very beginning, and anything that's been going on for 400 years loses some of its punch after the first couple centuries. And anything that we've been hearing about for years and years and years loses some of its... Uh, so stop. This is the God who where there was nothing said, let there be, and then there was. What authority? What power? Nothing. I mean, not even, try to think about this, not even outer space. There wasn't space. Nothing. And he said, let there be, and there was. That should give a whole nother shape to power and might. And what he made when he spoke it into existence, the grandeur of it all, the detail, he is a vast, wide, wise mind that goes along with that might. And everything that exists only exists and is only sustained in its existence because he decides today, at this moment, it is thus and so. A sustaining power. Which comes down to little old you and me. We exist only because he has said, let there be. And we continue to exist only because he said, right at this moment, you shall be thus and so. Your very life, the next breath you draw, is dependent on this authority, this ruler. There is a king. But he is not just all about might and vast wisdom. There is also an, another aspect of him which is marvelously intimate and near, dear and sweet, gracious and kind and loving. He is that too. Oh, it is one thing to be faced with, with sheer, raw omnipotence. And it is another to know that that is a king who is drawn near. Who said, I want to know you, I want to be with you, I want to bless you, touch you, and do good to you. He is a king, and he is that kind of king. And when we consider just something about that nature, that sort of a ruler, the audacity of a small, infinitely teeny tiny little creature to say, No! is alarming and appalling and ludicrous and tragic because it is to reject the one who loves. And it is desperate because it is to reject the one who holds all power over every moment of your life between his thumb and forefinger. There is a king. There is a king. We do not live in a democracy. We do not live in a republic. We have a king. 
And here is a people, alarmingly, a people with whom he has made covenant and to whom he has done great good, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, carrying them as a a father carries his children through the wilderness and establishing them in a land of rest. And every step of the way, they say no. And right here in the passage, they say, we hear you telling us about what a king will be like, and we want nothing to do with your counsel, with your advice, with your wisdom. We know better, thank you. Let's focus in on the issue that is, is most central, it's redundant, that is central to them here, the issue of, like the other nations, a warrior, a champion, Think about what security, what status, what protection looks like for them. The people essentially are tired of feeling vulnerable and naked. Think of how the judges worked. The best example perhaps is Gideon. Did God use Gideon to defeat the invading army and protect his people? Yes. However, all up until that time when Gideon was raised up, there was no leader of the people and there was no army. 120, 130,000 men versus zero are bad odds. And even though he raised up Gideon, I mean, right up until things went well, things looked bad. Especially when the general dismisses his whole army, save 300 guys, and his tactic involves torches. This does not feel safe. It doesn't feel secure. It feels like we are a laughingstock of the neighborhood, and we are incredibly vulnerable to being exploited and attacked It would be far better, far more comfortable, far more wise to those who see with their eyes to have a king with an army such that when trouble comes, we know immediately to whom we turn and we can do it without thinking and without praying and without trusting. we got it taken care of. We want to be like all the nations that have their status and security well in hand. And for that, we need an earthly king. Enough of this judge's business. Not to mention that the judge's business, though it has worked well recently, at the moment looks a little tenuous. With Samuel getting old and his sons not looking good. You can can see how they're thinking about this and why a king is so attractive to them. But you must see behind the the reasoning to see what that is. What, What is that? One word for it. Unbelief. Did God come through with Gideon? Yes. And with Samuel? Yes. But in the end, finally... They're done trusting Him. 
We do not like that system. Give us another one with our deliverer right in hand who lives in that building, who has these soldiers. That's what we want. Give us that. That's unbelief, men and women. It's unbelief in his word when they refuse to obey it. Unbelief. Distrust of God that sprouts from a heart that at its center is bent against him and wants to do what is right in our own eyes. This is the core problem with humanity. The human heart. And though they, they can look back at evidence, they still have this core problem within them that is always calling out, look with your eyes at the circumstances right around you, bent against God. It's a tragic thing. But what's more alarming is really that this is a problem for us, the church, too. We can talk about about Israel, ancient Israel, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But when it comes down to it, the human heart in my chest and in your chest, and of course I'm not speaking about the literal heart, the human nature within each of us is no different than theirs. And we still, even today, we are not immune from living with our eyes up, looking around at the nations and seeing how things work for them and deciding, I think that's the way we should go. And we step right into this passage. We see how the world works, how the world secures itself, how the world attains for itself its own status, and we say, that's what I want, I'm going to get it even though God says otherwise. Unbelief. So I have to ask you, and and the difficulty of applying this is that it applies everywhere. So I need to ask you some general questions for yourself to think about, and then I want to try to make just one more narrow point for us as a, as a church corporately. I have to ask you, and maybe write this down to think about the end. How do you reject God's reign? Perhaps it relates to particular beliefs or goals. You look out at the world And you see, I I see that people secure themselves by chasing a profession and financial security. That's what I'm going to do. And yeah, I know that costs me some time with the Lord. I'm I'm a little busy to to spend time with family like I should and, and raise up my kids to follow after Him, but this is where I need to go. You never quite put it like that, but that's what you're doing. Maybe God will speak to you and convict you of that. Maybe it's a particular behavior. 
Maybe there's something that you know, as I'm talking about this, your, your heart's or your ears burning, tingling a little bit. Because you know something wrong characterizes your life and you're engaged in rationalizing it because everybody else does it too. I don't know what I'm talking about, but maybe you do. You know this is what God has said, but I look around and I see everybody else seemingly enjoying it, seemingly profiting from it. I'm going to do that. Whatever it is. So think about, ask the Lord, God, would you put your, your, your hand on me, in perhaps in a convicting way, Put your hand on me. What am I thinking about? What am I chasing after? What are my goals? Maybe particular behaviors? Where I have said no to the king. But let me bring it to one thing that I think is central to this passage and applies to the church as a whole. And I want to present it by way of of two contrasts. What I might call on the one hand, supernatural intervention or common sense. As I present it like that, I'm doing it to make something clear. I'm not saying that common sense is always wrong, but you'll see what what I'm doing with it in a minute. Supernatural intervention... Or common sense. How the world works at its core is I look around, I see how things work, I figure them out, I work, and I achieve. And in our society, expertise and technique and tools and mechanics, and education, and organization, and effort, and money, and technology are God. How do you build a life? How do you build a church? Well, obviously, you know the right stuff, and you present it in a technologically savvy, attractive way that will make people feel invited, warm, and like they're having a good time. That's how you win friends and influence people. Duh. Or you can pray and ask God to supernaturally intervene to change people's hearts, help them believe something that they otherwise hate. Again, I'm not saying that common sense is always wrong. There are obviously good places for tools and technique and money is necessary and technology can be helpful. But we, the church, and my goodness, this is an American issue. We, the church, believe, so it would seem by looking at us, we believe that we can garner enough technique and tool and mechanic, we can present it in just this way, with just this right presentation on the video screen, just this 
and we'll build a church. We won't. Ask yourself, do you actually believe that you are a a better, more well-rounded, deeper, wider, longer, higher lover of people and lover of God because you got an iPhone? That sounds crazy. Yeah. I have an iPhone, okay? Now, that aside, I think a lot of us actually have drunk the Kool-Aid. We actually believe and want to then further a, a culture in a church that attempts to be persuasive and winsome and hip and cool and sharp and we actually think that keeping a calendar on a phone is different than keeping one on a piece of paper. Now, okay, I'm being a little extreme. Do you see my point though? Do we think, okay, we've got some screens up here, we put some technology there, we add in some lights and boy, those lights spin around and have different colors. That'll build the church. The carpet's a little frayed. We better, we better fix that up. That'll build the church. Or, we should pray and ask God to open blind eyes and raise dead people. That'll build the church. Again, for the third time, I'm not saying really that None of this matters. I'm saying we are functional non-believers far more than we realize. What do you believe about how God builds His kingdom? What do you believe about how the King reigns? What do you believe about what secures the people of God? Is it the common sense from the world, a standing army with a, with a strong king and a wealthy and powerful government? Or is it naked and vulnerable? We don't have any of that stuff until the very moment that we need it. Which is it? Church. There is a great bit of fear attached to the naked and vulnerable piece. If you you think back to last week, you're standing on the hill as the Philistines are coming and the offering is being burnt as you're standing there. Is this going to work out or not? There's a great bit of fear in that vulnerability. God must graciously fall on you and on me and on us if we are going to stand in the face of that fear and say, I will trust you to build your church and to protect your people. 
I will trust you. He must fall on us. And if he does so, one of the, the greatest, I, I think, most consistent helps that he brings forward to us is that Ebenezer. Not, not the rock in, set up in the wilderness. I'm talking about the Ebenezer. One of the, the greatest, I think, most consistent helps that he brings to our minds when he wants to help us in the moment of vulnerable fear is to remind us of the cross. Has he ever supernaturally intervened to deliver? Yes. And looking back at that, And praying, God, would you cause that to rest deeply in my soul and to control my seeing that when I see how the nations work, I will also see how you you work. And oh God, spiritually, would you control my thinking with this cross? That's a work of God. I can say it. You already know all of that. It's a work of God to actually make that happen. Pray, pray, pray that he does. I pray that he does. That he actually controls your thinking and and holds up in front of you this strong testimony, this evidence that he has been your helper always in the past and will be your helper always into the future. God in grace opens our eyes to show us how good His reign is. May He do that to you. May He do that for you. By showing you the cross, but also secondly, and this moves to the second observation, perhaps a little bit less obvious. May He do that graciously, by introducing you to the sorrows. Here's the second point. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Repeat the sentence. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. I mentioned this in recent weeks. It's a Verse from Psalm 16, but it's seen here in verses 10 to 18. The description of what the people will find when they go after another king, that is, after other gods. They forsake one to serve another, and here's what it will be like. Trouble upon trouble and sorrow upon sorrow. Until the conclusion, verses 17 and 18, you shall be slaves. And you will cry out not for a king, but because of him. And you won't find me. Enslavement. Destruction. Sorrow upon sorrow. This is a warning to us. To leave this king is appalling. And to embrace these other gods is death and destruction. 
And he underlines that and makes that clear. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. He'll take all of the fruit from all of the land. The fruit of your womb, the fruit of your fields, the fruit of your, your cattle, everything. He'll take it to himself. And what will you be left with? Slaves. Now the Bible is really clear. In talking about enslavement, it'd be, say a word about this. I'm not speaking of literal enslavement, physical, one human being ruling over another. I'm talking about a spiritual reality of enslavement. We become slaves to the things we serve when they are not God. How that works, the thing you serve, the other thing that becomes a God to you, you you go after because you believe a promise, this thing will give me something that I think I want, at least. But you never quite get it. And the promise is unextended. One more step and you'll get it. Down around the corner and you'll get it. A little bit further down there and you'll get it. You haven't quite arrived yet or you don't have enough of it or you don't have it for long enough and so you keep chasing it, never finding what you're looking for because only God Himself can fill the hole. You're trapped, led on, and it actually becomes a master to you. And the Bible says that for non-Christians, there is a control there. You can't get away from it. But for Christians, though the same control problem is not in play, there is a strong habit problem. Such that we bizarrely volunteer to serve these things. To our destruction. And so he warns us here, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to lead you to loss. And, and so there's, there's help in the warning itself. That God surrenders us to this Sorrow upon sorrow. God tells us that the sorrows will multiply if you chase them. There's help in the warning itself to know that's a path that has a promise that never actually delivers. I'll chase it forever, and all the time I'm chasing it, I've left off where the hope actually is found, God himself. There's, hope, there's help then from God in warning us about this, but maybe unexpectedly there's a little more help. And I think I come to this, this aspect of the sorrows by kind of stepping back and looking at the larger picture of the Bible. When they ask him for a king, and he tells them, warns them, sorrow upon sorrow, trouble is coming. He then says yes to it. He gives them the king. What's he doing there? Think of it like this. You're walking down a path that's paved, straight, clear, and if you like Pilgrim's Progress, is leading to a shining city. And at some point, you say, you and your friends, your fellow travelers, no. And you leave the path, veering off 
onto something not paved and straight and wide and clear, but dirt, rock, overgrown, up and down, twisting and turning, left the path. Well, that path here is called We Want a King Path. And on you wander, you and your friends, back and forth and up and down. But if you stop and think about it, there was a sign on that path. The path was marked. And every now and then, though the path is obviously overgrown with weeds and treacherous, every now and then there is some indication that someone's keeping the path. A tree's fallen across the path, and somebody with a chainsaw cut the section that blocks the path. You can keep going. And there's a little bit of erosion control further down, and one really, really treacherous spot has a guardrail built. Over hill and dale and up and down and through the weeds, you're wandering, but maybe you're beginning to wonder, is somebody, maybe this path does actually lead somewhere. Somebody's actually attending to it. Until one day, completely out of the blue, you break through overgrown vines and you hack away all the grass that's grown up above your shoulders and you find yourself with your foot striking pavement back on the road. I'm looking big picture of the Bible, and what I notice is that God said, you need a king. A king like this. Deuteronomy 17 spells out what this king would be like. He would be a man who did not trust in horses and chariots, who did not chase after many women, who did not love great wealth, that his heart would not go astray, but was a man who was instead humble beneath the Word of God, who took it into himself and lived it out, walked in righteousness and faithfulness, humility, steadfast love, held tightly to the Lord, and led the people of God. That's the kind of king you need. That's not the one you want yet. So I will surrender you to the sorrows. I'll surrender you to the kings like you want. And you will wander off and up and down and all around, but I'm, I'm going to keep the path. I'm going to keep you. I'm going I'm to protect you from plummeting over the side because I intend to bring you back to a king who is the king. This is God's plan all along that the people want a king. And he works through the sorrows over centuries to hone their taste and to woo them back to him, to invite them back to, yes, a king, but a king who's an awful lot like the God who reigns and that they left long ago. He multiplies sorrows, surrenders them to affliction. Yes, give it to them. To incline them, to incline us to seek after another king still. 
a better king. The one that we actually do need. The one that your heart actually was made for, made to be ruled by. You insanely reject, but God graciously is at work to refine you and shape you and change you. This is the goodness of God. Even when surrendering us to sorrow. So I ask you then, have you experienced the multiplied sorrows of wandering? Some of us, particularly because of where we live, some of us, at the moment, you know nothing but health, You know, nothing but health, wealth, personal security of your health and your wealth. You have a great family and a wonderful job, and the future is bright. And you're not thinking about it. Because all of that's passing away. None of it lasts. Others of us, though, right now, you are very clear on the fact that sorrow upon sorrow multiplies. Yes, sorrow comes to us even if we aren't wandering away from the Lord. That is true. But some of your sorrow, some of your sorrow is coming to you because you are bowing down to the gods of the world and they are awful taskmasters. They cannot deliver to you life. And so I ask you, you, and I don't know who you are, you, are you in the midst of multiplied sorrows right now which, in fact, is God speaking to you. You need a king, you need a ruler, you need to serve one, but not the one that you're serving. He, it, is killing you. I don't know who you are, but I hope that you know who you are, and I hope you know this is talking to you. God sometimes graciously not just warns us about sorrows, but surrenders us to them to awaken us to need and to point out to us the results of wandering. We all need a king. We were made to be ruled. We serve someone. We must not reject the King who actually is, who is full of goodness and righteousness and justice and has proven that to us by how good and righteous and just He has been in Christ. Do not reject Him. Do not chase after the world and find sorrow there. Everything there is rubbish compared to knowing Him. Let me pray for you now. Let me ask you then to go to 
time where you think and ask the Lord, where am I turning away from you? And ask him, will you show me? Will you, will you work in me to either, whichever one's more relevant for you, either to show you the goodness of Christ for you or to show you the sorrow of life away from him? He pray for you and then you sit and think that through yourself. Father, most here are your dearly loved ones. And I pray that those who are your people here, that you would deal with them in a way that is, that is clear and compelling and is gracious and kind. Both. You strike that balance best. So do it, please. Call your people here to faith. And point out to them unbelief. God, be gracious to prove to us, to show us how much you are for us and how powerful and and creative and wise you are to bring the King back around to us to reign. King Jesus, Lord, show us that and open our eyes to misery misery of walking away from you. And Lord, for those here who are not yours, but are thinking, Lord, convince them that Jesus is hope. For those here who aren't yours and aren't thinking, awaken them, show them the shortness of life, the emptiness of what they're leaning on right now. God, be merciful. God, would you work now in this room in the particular ways that you know best to honor your name and build up your people. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.